I don't have one specific passage today, so we'll be doing a little flipping, and the verses will be on the screen. But I want to begin where most things begin, with a diet of worms, sorry, with the diet of worms, the greatest name of any event in church history. The diet of worms is not an insect-based turn like all these plant-based turns that we keep hearing about with people's diets. The diet of worms was a meeting where Martin Luther had to defend himself. Before the diet of worms, by the way, worms was the town, or if my dad was here, he'd be like, verms, and I'd be like, yeah. Martin Luther was writing and speaking against the Pope and the Catholic Church of that time and its theology and its practices. He had a treatise called Christian Nobility of the German Nation, where he proclaimed that the final authority in matters civil and religious was the Bible, not the Pope. In his treatise, Babylonian Captivity of the Church, he wrote that there were only two sacraments, baptism and communion, and not the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church. In his treatise on the freedom of the Christian, he fundamentally broke from the Catholic Church in declaring that we are saved by faith alone. He fundamentally broke with the Catholic Church in declaring that we are saved by faith alone, not faith in cooperation with our good works. And because of these writings and what he was preaching, he was excommunicated by Pope Leo X. And because of this excommunication, he was summoned to this meeting, a diet, at the town of Worms, where he would stand for trial before Emperor Charles V. At the Diet of Worms, Luther had to defend his beliefs and his criticisms of the Catholic Church. And at the end of the trial, he was simply asked, do you recant what you have said and written? And he famously said this, Since then, your serene majesty and your lordship seek a simple answer. I will give it without horns or teeth as follows. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of scripture or by evident reason, for I trust neither in popes nor in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures that I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. Therefore, I cannot and will not recant, since it is neither safe nor right to go against one's conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. God help me. Amen. After that, Luther was allowed safe passage back to his home in Wittenberg, but the emperor condemned him as a heretic. As one author summarizes about this, the Edict of Worms condemned Luther's doctrines and actions along with all who aided, condoned, published, or read his views. And I give you that bit of history because this sets the stage for a specific piece of writing that I want to look at this morning to help us explore the scriptures. Because of this condemnation and excommunication, people feared for Luther's life. 
It was not abnormal for heretics back then to get the death penalty. There was a nobleman who liked Luther and his ideas named Frederick the Wise. And to protect Luther, Frederick put him in Wartburg Castle, where beginning in May of 1521, one of the main things that Luther did was he translated the New Testament into German. And as I was thinking about what I wanted to preach on this week as we remember Reformation Sunday, I was captured by this idea. When Martin Luther had to hide for his life, he translated the Bible into the language of his people. He did not panic. He did not give up. He kept working so that the people of his country could have a Bible that they could read. I want to come back to that idea because we have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to that. And I want us to be humbled by the fact that these folks didn't even have a Bible in their own language. Anyway, we'll come back to that. So today, I'm going to be using a lot of quotes and ideas from the preface to the New Testament that we have. So Luther translated the New Testament into German, but at the beginning he gave sort of introductory comments about the gospel as a preface to reading his New Testament. And so as you follow along in the outline provided in your bulletin there, those are some of ideas. Some are quotes from the preface, others are sort of encapsulating the idea. But we're going to look at what the gospel is as Luther introduced it in his preface to the first German New Testament. So let's first look at the gospel as a gospel of words. In his preference, Luther rightly points out that the word gospel is a Greek word that means in Greek a good message, good tidings, good news, a good report which one sings and tells with gladness. When we speak of the gospel, we are talking about truth that needs to be proclaimed. In fact, Luther compares it to the good news given to the Israelites when David killed Goliath, found in 1 Samuel chapter 18. But it is better news because it is news of our salvation. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 1 verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is the good news, the good message that Jesus died and rose again so that all who believe in him will be forgiven of their sins, reconciled to God, and have the hope of eternal life. The way of salvation comes to us communicated through words. And I want to focus on two implications of that this morning. And the first is that God has used words to communicate the way of salvation. And this sounds very basic to our ears, but again, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of Christians who lived at the time of Martin Luther and before. Before Martin Luther, there was no Bible written in German. The only Bible for the German people was the Vulgate, 
the Latin translation, which was only accessible by the educated and the rich. Comparatively, so few people could do the simple task of reading the Bible. One of the gifts of the Reformation was the commitment to people having the Bible in a language they can actually read. And again, I want you to feel the weight of that, of something that is so basic to us. As I was writing these words, I looked up at my shelf and saw every single English translation of the Bible that I've collected over the years. When we think about our history, one of the things we can do is see how much God has blessed us, even in the most seemingly small ways of a Bible you can actually read. And we need to be humbled by that. And it compels us to support translation ministries so that all people can have a Bible they can read. Luther fought for the Bible as the ultimate authority for the Christian. And he fought for all people to have access to the written word of God. How much more those of us who have lost track or lost count of the Bibles we have owned over the years. So that we see all people from all nations have a Bible in their own language, something we so take for granted. But secondly, if the gospel is a message of good news, it must be proclaimed. The good news of Jesus Christ is a message that all people need to hear. Again, let me quote from Luther's preface. Thus, this gospel of God, our New Testament, is a good story and report sounded forth into all the world by the apostles, telling of a true David who strove with sin, death, and the devil and overcame them, and thereby rescued all those who were captive in sin, afflicted with death, and overpowered by the devil. Without any merit of their own, he made them righteous, gave them life, and saved them, so that they were given peace and brought back to God. Or as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 10, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Friends, our world is full of people who have never heard. And all of us, you, me, we are God's instruments to proclaim his words. We need to understand our identity as believers, as God's proclaimers to this world. God has placed you where you live, where you work, where your hobbies are, where, where all the things that you do. He has sovereignly placed you there to be a part of someone coming to faith in Jesus. 
Every interaction we have, every word we speak, either pushes someone away from Jesus or towards Jesus. And we are called all to be proclaimers because this is a message of news that needs proclaiming. It is a message this world needs whereby those who believe are made righteous, forgiven of their sins, and saved to the hope of eternal life. Secondly, one of the major parts of Luther's preface is that the gospel is a gospel of promise. When Luther writes, he says that he talks about the promise of the gospel, that he did this to strengthen this faith. So I want you to be strengthened in your faith this morning. And I want to take you through the exact argument that Luther gives in this preface that he wrote for Christians at his time. What Luther does is he takes his readers through multiple Old Testament passages that point to Jesus Christ. You'll see the progression here. Again, with one notable exception where he throws John 11 in there, but we'll talk about that. (laughs) He begins at the very beginning. Genesis chapter 3. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. From the first moments of the fall of men into sin, God promised a Savior. The way of salvation was not something that God had to come up with on the fly, but it was promised from the very beginning. He promised a Savior who would never fail, who would defeat sin, death, and the devil. And he promised that Savior in Genesis 22, And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. In his word to Abraham, God promised a descendant through whom all the people of this earth would be blessed. We've talked about this before, that the gospel was never meant just for one people. Again, even in the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 22, we are told that the way of salvation is meant for all the nations. To this, Luther quotes, to bolster his case, Jesus' words in John 11. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Anyone. All people of faith, but only through faith. The promise of a Savior includes all people who have placed their faith in Jesus. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation. To this, Luther cites from Micah, again, getting to the end of the Old Testament. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. This promise that began in Genesis chapter 3 comes with a confirming sign. 
the geographic location of the birth of Jesus acts as a confirmation that this promise has been fulfilled. In all of this, Luther gives us a picture of a God who keeps his promises. A God who kept his promise to save his people. And a man who had to stay in a castle just to stay alive rested on that foundational truth. Concluding this section, Luther writes, the gospel then is nothing but the preaching about Christ, the Son of God and David, true God and man, who by his death and resurrection has overcome for us the sin, death, and hell of all men who believe in him. That promise was true back in the garden. That promise was true in the time of Abraham. That promise was true when Micah wrote his book. And that promise is true today. God did send a Savior. He sent Jesus to live a perfect life and to die a sacrificial death and rise again so that any who believe would be forgiven of their sins, reconciled to God, and have the hope of eternal life. And it's to that faith where Luther turns next. So we see next in your outline there that Luther talks about a gospel of faith. As I've mentioned before, one of the rallying cries of the Reformation was that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. One of the major battles of Luther's time was whether or not we are saved by faith alone or if we are saved by our works cooperating with the work of Christ. Luther makes it clear in his preface preface that we are saved by faith alone. He writes this, For the gospel does not expressly demand works of our own by which we become righteous and are saved. Indeed, it condemns such works. Rather, the gospel demands faith in Christ, that he has overcome for us sin, death, and hell, and thus gives us righteousness, life, and salvation, not through our works, but through his own works, death, and suffering, in order that we may avail ourselves of his death and victory as though we had done it ourselves. Couldn't help but think of what Paul writes in those familiar words of Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. There is no boasting. There is no pride for the Christian. There is only hope. It is not your ability to perform good deeds that save you. You cannot boast because you were saved by grace through faith. But also because it, was, because it wasn't your performance, your salvation is actually secure. Because we are saved by faith in Jesus and in Jesus alone, our salvation, our hope can never be taken away. Because Jesus never fails. One of the interesting parts of Luther's biography 
was his immense guilt. And maybe I'll save this for Reformation next year. But Luther was terrified. He was terrified of standing before the Lord because he knew he wasn't righteous. Luther's comfort, our comfort, our hope, comes in the fact that we are not saved by how good we are because we all know we're not good enough. And if you don't know that, let me tell you, you are not good enough. There is freedom in that we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. We do not have to fear death. We do not have to fear judgment because we have been saved by Jesus. And that salvation, because it is through faith, will never be taken away. But as we talk about being saved by faith and not by works, Luther anticipates a question. Then why is the Bible full of commands? Let's look at the gospel of good works as how Luther understood it. He writes in his preface, To be sure, Christ did the gospels, And St. Peter and St. Paul, besides, do give many commandments. But he makes an interesting argument that in the commands, God does not compel us, but invites us kindly to follow his commands. Not that the commands are not commands, but that in the commands, God is inviting us to obey and flourish that through obeying the commands of Jesus, we experience what Luther calls the benefits of Christ. When we follow God's commands, we are experiencing the blessing of God. Now we need to pause there because rarely do we think of being told what to do as the way to experience blessing. Right? We think... Our natural inclination is to be blessed, to live the life we want to live. We should be able to live any way we want. But Luther says, if you want to experience the blessing of God, you need to think about commands differently. That the commands of God are written for our good. Even the ones we don't always understand. And so when you come to a command... Watch your heart. As you come to a command, especially one that causes you to bristle for whatever reason, the underlying fact is that God gave you that command for your good. For you to flourish and experience true life. But Luther also points out that it is through good works that we show ourselves to be true followers of Jesus. He quotes from John chapter 13, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. 
By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Luther writes, because he is alive and righteous and saved by faith and he needs nothing further except to prove his faith by works, truly, if faith is there, he cannot hold back. He proves himself, breaks out into good works, confesses and teaches, teaching this gospel before the people and stakes his life on it. Seeing that Christ has done this for him, he thus follows Christ's example. That is the place of good works in the life of a believer. We are following Christ's example. Our our faith naturally flows out into good works. I love that phrase, that true faith breaks out into good works and in doing so gives evidence to our faith. We are not saved by our works, but we show ourselves to be true disciples through good works works. And to mix that up is one of the most dangerous things for your faith. We show our faith by how we live. We don't create our faith by how we live. A couple thoughts to close up this morning. Number one, church history can be a great help to know how to live our lives as Christians today. How often do we live as if we were the first Christians to deal with the challenges of life? There are positive examples in history. There are negative examples in history. And really, most people, including Luther, are very much both. There are some things that Luther did that we need to run away from. But there's a lot of what he did that we need to run toward. When we were going through the season of COVID restrictions and mandates, one of the things that helped me in understanding how we should act as a church was by reading what churches did during the Spanish flu in 1918. Because they wrote about it, and I could read it. Friends, one of the problems specifically with the American church, is we act as if church history doesn't exist. (laughs) And as the old saying goes, those who forget their history are doomed to repeat it. (laughs) For those who might want to do some more reading, maybe you didn't grow up in a church that talked a lot about church history. Let me give you two really accessible books. The first one I, I just read this year was called Bullies and Saints. An Honest Look at the Good and Evil of Christian History by a guy named John Dixon. Great book. And the other one is a classic, and and on Reformation Day you have to sort of suggest this book, but that is Here I Stand, A Life of Martin Luther by Roland Bainton. There's a lot of good biographies out there. I don't know if that's something that's a part of your repertoire, but you learn a lot from looking at the past, from looking not... Not deifying the people in the past, but also not making everything they do terrible. Because those people were like us. We're not perfect, and we're not 100% terrible. Well, at least you guys aren't, I don't know. But, but we need to understand 
what it was like not just living today and to learn from the past without being subject to the past. Secondly, God has revealed himself through the written scriptures. With all the stress of being a condemned man, Martin Luther knew that his fellow countrymen needed a Bible they could actually read. One of the gifts of the Reformation was a commitment to all people being able to read the Word of God. We must be humbled because of the embarrassment of riches we have with so many copies of the Bible available to us. But it also reminds us that we need to be people of the book. We must also be committed to the mission of all people around the world having a Bible they can read. And finally, since God has revealed himself in the good news of Jesus, we are to be a people who proclaim that good news. And all of us are proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The message that Jesus died and rose again so that all who repent of their sins and believe in him will be forgiven of their sins, reconciled to God, and have the hope of eternal life. Secondly, God keeps his promises. Again, as we saw Luther taking us through the Old Testament passages to show that God had always promised to send Jesus as our Savior. God always keeps his promises. And we can find comfort in the long history of God promising to send a Savior and then doing it. And because of his trustworthiness and keeping his promises, we also know that when he promises to always be with us, when he promises that Jesus will return and we will spend eternity with him, that he will keep his promises. As the old song says, standing on the promises of God. Thirdly, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The Bible is very clear. We are not saved by our good works. Our good works do not cooperate with the work of Christ. Because of this, we are humbled and there is no boasting. Because of this, our salvation is secure. And because our faith is in Jesus and Jesus never fails, through faith, Jesus secures our salvation. Finally, number four, we live out our salvation with good works. Just because we are saved by faith does not nullify the commands of the Bible. Just because our good works don't save us does not mean that they are useless. We receive God's pleasure and blessing when we do good works. And every command is for our good. Good works should be a natural outflow of our faith. Again, to use that phrase from Luther, truly if faith is there, he cannot hold back. He proves himself breaks out into good works. When our faith is real, we do good works. This is how we show that we are truly followers of Jesus. We show that we belong to Christ when we love each other, John 13. We show that we belong to Christ when we serve our neighbors. Christianity is an active faith. It is faith in Jesus that produces good works like an apple tree produces apples. We are saved by grace to love and serve the Lord. We are saved by grace to love and serve our neighbors. I hope you appreciated celebrating and recognizing Reformation Sunday to learn from our past and to celebrate the gospel. A gospel of words, a gospel of promise, 
a gospel of faith, and a gospel of good works. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you've saved us into a people who has a history. That we can learn about your word and who you are through people who have come before us. God, that we would be proclaimers of the words of the gospel of Jesus. That we live out that faith in love and good works. That we would be people of the written word, thankful for every page that we can actually read. God, that you will humble us and that you will cause us to have great gratitude and joy in living out our faith in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for watching this video from Hillside Evangelical Free Church. Our hope is that these resources will help you grow as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. We're located in Greenbank, Washington on Whidbey Island. And if you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to have you join us. You can find out more information at our website at hillside-efc.com.